The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I want to let you know that today, this podcast is going to be the last podcast I do for Slate. And um, I'm going to continue the podcast. If you subscribe to iTunes.com slash The Moment, that will still be there whenever the next podcast that I do shows up, which will be sometime in the next month. I want to say that Slate uh, uh, have been great to me. They welcome me into their operation and... um, have supported me and have uh, provided for me to be able to do this podcast in a a really convenient and easy way. Uh, They've moved their offices and their facilities further away from where I am, and the whole thing just doesn't really make sense anymore. But the main thing is that listeners who found me through Slate, I'm so happy to have had the ability to connect with you in this way. I'm so happy that you follow me on on Twitter and interact with me online, and I, I really hope you'll continue to engage in this conversation with me uh, wherever this podcast lands next. And if you've been listening since Grantland, you know that the show doesn't change uh, no matter uh, what the uh, external branding is. So I will continue having these conversations. I will continue engaging. I will continue trying to dig uh, as deep as I can into the stuff that I find really animating and compelling. And I hope you'll stay along for the ride. Thank you very much. iTunes.com slash the moment. If If you are getting the podcast in some sort of aggregator of various Slate podcasts, that won't continue to work after this one. So you got to go to iTunes.com slash the moment and subscribe there or follow me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Really excited about this conversation with Bamani. That's going to start now. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled about my guest today, Bomani Jones, who I first really became familiar with because of Highly Questionable, uh, a show uh, on which Bomani was uh, one of the hosts for how many years? Four years. For four years. And um, he is the host of, I think, the best talk radio show uh, going now, The Right Time with Bomani Jones, and has a new television show that's going to premiere in January on the worldwide leader. Have you announced the title of the show? All I know is that it's going to be a show. I know who's going to I know who's going to be on the show with me and I guess sometime around September we'll start coming up with other stuff. You haven't figured that's out That's all I got. Yet. That's all I got. But that's starting and you do the radio show every day on ESPN yeah. all over the country and people can listen to it on podcasts. Right. Every day 4 to 7 Eastern um ESPN app they like us to send people toward the app. But yeah, we do that and Sirius is another good way to get that one if you don't if your local affiliate does not carry it. And um, people often call you, you know, the smartest person in sports, which is uh, a pretty interesting kind of backhanded compliment. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I want to and I want to talk about um, your decision to do this with with your your life, really. You know, I've been listening a lot to your show and um, and I watched you do this live stream thing you do once a week on BamaniJones.com last night. And um, your point of view is really fascinating to me and I can tell it's really hard one and I'm really tempted to ask you a bunch of questions about the stuff you talk about all the time but but I people can get that so I really want to talk about how you how you develop the point of view that you have about how the prism through which you look at the world came to be and um 
And I also really want to talk about Highly Questionable, which to me is the most subversive show in terms of tone and voice <laughs> that ESPN's ever broadcast. And I have to know how you decided to commit to that and whether like the absurdist point of view was part of the enticement. I, I want to get there. But I, I just want to start because, and people go listen to Bomani's show because it's not like any other sports radio talk show. And I'm somebody, I listened to Bill Mazur as a kid. I, I know I've listened to sports radio my whole life. And um, it's an entirely different. You've inv- I think you've really changed the point of view of oh, I appreciate that. Show. So I, I but the thing that I'm struck by when I watch you, when I listen, even more than when I watch you, because when I watch, there's a little Jack Benny going on with the takes. <laughs> but um your love of language. And I, I wonder when you first realized that you loved language and that you had a gift for using it. See, it's interesting because like my sister, she writes fiction. Yeah, she's a successful novel. Yeah, like, like she's somebody in that world. And I, I think of her as more as like really someone who like really, really, really gets into language, right? The thing I'm fascinated by, I think in terms of that, like when I was growing up, I guess, you know, you write in school and they tell you you're good at writing and that's just kind of whatever it is. In high school, I think back to like me and my best friend rolling around. And so we're growing up in Houston and the thing about us there is like the music and stuff we were listening to, you know, somewhat out of there, but it was all over the place. And so we're talking about, you know, the early to mid 1990s where the like national explosion of rap in a mainstream way is getting bigger. So, you know, there's always been every place that always had their rappers and everything. But now we get to the point where everybody can hear them. And so for us. We were totally fascinated by the slang in all these different places. And we used to take like great joy in the hodgepodge of like, okay, take a word from the West. All right, take a word from here. Okay, take a word from New York. And to kind of throw this all together and try to make something and then maybe we add a little something here. And then I remember my man was always so good at like taking the little small words out of school, right? So, you know, when we were younger and a bit more immature and more evaluative of people's appearances in ways that I would not be in my 30s, right? So you can say somebody's unattractive. You can call them a Grendel out of Beowulf. We were going with grendel man like that's what it was you know so we we do all these things together and so for me it wound up being at first like okay i'm the smart kid and you know the big words and you know how to put them together and that's just kind of functional right then it got to a point for me where it was like okay more exposure to more things and everything else and it was like okay well sometimes the best word is the little word sometimes the best word is the big word sometimes they're both in the same sentence and People are capable of understanding both, even if they don't necessarily know what one means, right? And so we just threw it out. It was just all together. And it just kind of became fun in that way, just to kind of see how things sounded. And from there, I then I feel like, especially professionally, as a matter of paring down to, you know, make sure people can actually understand what it is that you're talking about. That helps. Yeah, you just ran the gamut in a way from from talking about being in high school to being a professional person. I, but listening to the show, I just want to stay with this because... I know that it's all this conscious, but it even seems like you're doing something in a very consciously political way about keeping, uh, being aware of who your audience is and bringing them along into your vision. Yeah. You're nodding, right? Because to me, your idiolect contains multitudes. I wrote this down to, to ask you what you're saying, which is in one sentence, I've seen you flip in and out of like these lexicographical modalities. Like you'll say something like, I gotta get me a job. And then immediately switch into speaking like a professor. You could use the word performative correctly. <laughs> um, like, So are you making a point in a way about, because a lot of what you talk about is identity in various ways. And, and I think that your language to me is making a point about identity and about capacity and all this stuff. So I'm, I'm wondering how much you think about that. Because it's kind of striking when you use, when you say something like, well, I had to get me a job. And it, it feels very conscious. Well, it is to a degree, right? And I think the conscious part is 
I would argue that it's probably consciously, kind of like consciously trying not to be conscious of it, right? So there are two levels. One level is definitely the identity of it. Because I admit, like, I grew up, I went to school in this little town called Waller, Texas, with like 1,500 people. Your parents are professors right. very, very accomplished right. PhD level people. Right, right, they are. And then I'm going to school in a place where even at the time, I didn't really have an awareness of how different the way I grew up was than the way a lot of them grew up. I realize it now looking on Facebook because I saw them every day. You know, like these are the people I was always around. So we moved from Atlanta, where I was in a very, very black sort of world, to moving to Houston, where the world was like much whiter. And so we lived in the suburban neighborhood, but my parents taught in this rural area. So it was like 25 mile ride. And so we go out there and I never really I never was really cognizant of the fact that where I was and growing up was like different, really, than where they were and growing up in part. Because, like, you know, we go to my grandparents' house, you know, my, my grandmother's house in Louisiana. I was growing up in Oklahoma and everything, and it's a smaller, more rural setup over there. But that's just part of the existence, right? So I never felt like I was jumping out of a world to go to any of those places because it's family. But your world is more, the world you were growing up in was more suburban or more yes. rural? The, the, I would say the world that I lived in, like the physical domicile, was more suburban. I would say the world that I lived in, because school and all of that is really where you was lived, the rural was world. the rural world, right? So, like, I have a, I have, I relate probably better to that existence in a lot of ways than the one that one would think is like classically or like more in line with who I am. So, for me, the consciousness of it is the fact that I have been called a lot of times like the different black dude, right? Like, I had a friend. I never forget. I was growing up. This dude told me he was like, "Yeah, you know," he was talking about his sister. He said. You know, if you wanted to date my sister, I don't know if my dad would like it, but I know if Tyrone did, he would really not like it, right? And so, that's, like, I grew up and I always had, like, somewhat of a realization, like, hey, that's not really cool, even though you think that it is, because, they, you know, it's the, you are great, but you're not like the rest of them. And well, it's I am, like the Davian Goliath level acceptance <laughs> yes, exactly, or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. But I am perfectly aware of the fact that I am like the rest of them. I'm like them and not like them at the same time. And so, like, with that understanding, and honestly, but some might term the arrogance to believe that no matter how I say this, the point is going to be the same. You will understand me and I will get to you. So to me, the most effective way to say something is whatever it happens to be at that moment. So, you know, if I want to express viscerally what it is to need to go get a job, yo, man, got to go get me a job. That sounds a lot better than and makes more sense and is more effective than, well, I was going to secure I was looking to secure employment for my landlord was very curious when I would be able to make restitution for the um, for the lease. Right. And so that's the way I look at it is this is what works right here. So do it right. here. Most people aren't comfortable living in a multiplicity of communicative forms. Yeah. You know, but and which I just did that. To fuck around. <laughs> I mean, also, yeah. I just felt, but like, you know, most people, um, they do have uh, a, a mode of communication that's just who the fuck they are. Right. And and it does feel as a listener, like depending on what you're talking about or who you're talking to, you will flip a switch sometimes, which is like, don't judge me. Don't think you know the box in which you can put me because you can't because- I'm multitudinous. And I do think that that's like, uh, I'm wondering if you felt that you had to forge that. No, honestly, for me, it was my own personal level of comfort on those things, right? Like, I really, 
I really feel like what I'm saying, as long as you understand me, the only thing that matters in terms of communication is what you say. The great Bill Withers line, it don't do too much good to be talking, brother, if ain't nobody listening, right? Like if they, if people understand you, whatever the mode needs to be. Now, sometimes it gets to be interesting. Like um, when I talk to the president of ESPN, it's interesting because he is even countryer than I am. He is from a very small town of sorts. But he has this fantastic gift for language. I think he's got a degree in English letters from Columbia or something like that. So he has this fantastic way of just putting things and just, you know, very smoothly and everything else. And I do almost find myself somewhat peer pressured when I'm talking to him to try to, like, keep up with the elegance of, like, it's all this this elegance, though, with this really deep southern accent. Like, it's a fascinating thing to kind of listen to. Sometimes I'm with people. honey drip thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. Now, sometimes I'm in those, like, type situations with people of that level. And nope, that's just not what I feel like doing right then at that moment. You know, like, I just think, I think as a communicator, you have to be able to effectively gauge who your audience is and also give your audience, give them the respect of understanding that they can also understand things that are not necessarily put the way that they hear them all the time. Like the thing that fascinated me most about the wire, and I'm one of those super wire junkies, but in terms of writing, they never explained anything, right? A homicide file is an H file. You will gradually glean that is an H file, but they are not going to tell you what this means. And somehow all these people who, you know, are far from anything, you know, West Baltimore drug trade related could understand every single bit of it. And I remember seeing that and being like, okay, people are better at this than we give them credit for being. Well, yeah, I mean, I give a lot of thought to this because of what I do. And like, so the insularity of a, a closed culture. The insularity of the language of a closed culture that then in, when it's put up on um, in film or in, uh, on television that somehow invites you in, like our first movie, which was the poker movie Rounders, that has a complete language that doesn't exist in the world. And we were just like, we're not going to explain it and see what the fuck happens. And people, if you if they believe you really know it and you're not bullshitting it, they will do the work to get in, then they really appreciate being on the inside. Of it. Yes, exactly. So that's part of, I guess, what you're yeah. doing too, is you're saying this is our world. Right. And that as people listen, right. you'll get it. I mean, you'll do the same thing with the with the cultural memes that you use. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. No, like I say, I think, people get, I think people get a whole lot of stuff and not everybody has to get every joke. I think that's maybe the biggest thing that people lose sight of is that, like somebody told me once about television that if people remember one thing that you said about te- on a television show, you won. They remember one thing, then you have come out victorious. They're not going to get every joke, and and that's fine. So I do think you don't want to alienate people by making what you're doing so insular that they can't get in, right? Like, you don't want to make it into a barrier. Um, If I learned anything in Miami, language is the great segregator. Once people feel like they can't understand, they turn things off much more quickly. I think they just can understand more than they give themselves credit for, and especially with black stuff, because people just have a tendency well, to feel like they're outsiders on it, and I don't, you know. No. Well, I just like that you threw uh, Bill Withers' reference, which, uh, you know, is lean on me if people don't know, <laughs> and who has a great story. But, like, last night on your show, you uh, talked about the fact that, that that maybe we shouldn't even be listening to Bill Withers. Yeah. It's tricky, right? Like, they was, that was the talk about him and beating the hell out of Denise Nicholas, allegedly. allegedly. In the early 1970s. Yeah, you were talking about Marvin Gaye, and you were talking about Bill Withers and all these people and sort of how we decide what we'll forgive from the artists that we love, what like kind of lies we'll tell ourselves about it. Yeah, and I was, I think, those are the things I like talking about as much as anything else, right? Because that is, we we are judging people. Right. In spite of what most people's religions have told them about judgment and they're supposed to pass this off on someone else. We are typically judging people. We're judging people good and bad, by the way. We judge people positively. No one says you should not judge them. We only say that when you do so negatively. Right. But I do often find like humans are inconsistent, man. We'll always be inconsistent. We'll be emotional beings that have 
somewhat like biases that I don't think are unhealthy necessarily. The people we like, we cut more slack to because if we like threw everybody out for every mistake, nobody would be left, you know? So like with, with the R. Kelly thing, and of course everybody's throwing him out right now, understandably. But you said clear. you haven't listened to him since 2004. 2003, 2003. I had to stop. I so couldn't one do listen to the album and that was it. And like, I, as I said last night, I won't, I miss Woody Allen's movies so much, like his movies. But I, I have a deal with myself, which is when the people die, you can go back to the work. You know, there's other two that. So if I if I live if I outlive Woody, which I you know actuarially I should, then I can dive back into the films. Yeah, because he's no longer out there perpetrating those horrible acts. Yeah, but you know sometimes you just can't look at somebody anymore, right? Like that's the thing with R. Kelly. It's like, yo, I don't think I can look at you anymore because whenever I see it. This is what comes back. Like, well, why is it getting people fired on television when they get caught in scandal? Is whether people can look at you anymore without thinking about this thing. Woody Allen, people can't do that, in part because just his mannerisms and what the accusation was. And R. Kelly, because he's singing songs. And, and Woody, because he when did. you go back to the movies, you can see he's laid in there these themes that then are the same, that, that allow you to believe that, that this stuff is true. All right, I want to go back to sure. biographical stuff. Because, you know, even when you're casually talking about how you. Uh, you know, some guy saying that thing to you. Certainly it gives me this image of you. Were you the only black person at your school? No, I was not the only I guess black. you and Tyrone. <laughs> yeah, no, there, were, there, were, there, there are actually lots of black people at the school where I was more so the one black person was in like the honors class sort of world. Like that's where it became a lot more singular. But the town I went to school in was one town over from the school where my parents went, which was a black college. So we had plenty of black people that I went to school with, but they were not, they were not in the subworld that I was in. Like I was in the cafeteria and in the gym. That was when I could be, when I was part of that world in class, not so much. Right. So you were thinking a lot of, I mean, which sort of at a certain point forced this, these ide yeah. various identity questions. Yeah. Right. Well, sort yes and no. Right. Because the one thing about the black colleges and growing up with parents who were professors at black colleges is I never had any belief that there was anything um, like orthogonal about blackness and education. Right. Like I never had that sort of issue. And then subtly when you subtly when you grow it up down the street from a black college, even with the people that you go to school with that might not be from the same place, they don't really have that same hold up either. Right. Because they like they know professors. They know all these things Like this isn't it. Those issues tend to come up more for black people who are like the one black person around a bunch of white people. And then they get out and they don't really know like anything else that goes on there. I do remember, though, one thing for me in terms of comfort, because, you know, teenage years, everybody's thinking they don't fit in. And, you know, what's your place? And when your hook is being smart, which was mine, that's the trickiest one in the world, because. All pop culture is telling you is that people want to give you wedgies. That is the only thing, right? Like, if honestly, I thought the cool, the coolest smart person they ever put on TV was like quietly Steve Urkel because right. Steve Urkel was confident. Steve Urkel was like funny and was like a national hit or something like that. Like, I was actually always found that character to be fascinating because of the confidence because there weren't a lot of confident nerds on television. Like, it wasn't like right. Big You're Bang too young. Here. Like Denzel would have been somebody on St. Elsewhere. Or yeah, something right. Like that there were. I mean, it's I mean, in a lot of cop shows, they're very smart. Too. Yeah, they are. But like just but when you're but the thing is, you are the smart kid in school. Like the dynamic oh, yeah. is, you know, the dynamic is only there. So I'll never forget, though, my junior year of high school, something happened with my schedule and they couldn't give me my typical menu of all the smart people classes. And for the first time in like core curriculum, I was in in class, like in school with like the dudes that I was playing ball with or the dudes I rode the bus with. That it never, ever happened before. And I was amazed at my ability to sit down in there and just like, oh, okay. 
They knew who I was. It wasn't like I was some stranger or anything, right? And I was one of the kids in class just, just hanging out. You were able just to Just hanging out, right. And it, it was like a real thing for me to realize, oh, you're not being judged at all in this space, man. Like, if you're good with you, you'll oh, be- Oh, by your ju- peers. You yeah, mean. yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting judged at all here. If you're good with you, that'll be just fine. So I could, you know, do the honors classes with the white kids and be respected as such there. And then figure it out, A, I'm not being judged by these people, and B- these cats are a lot smarter than people are giving them credit for. Like, they get the jokes I'm telling. They get all this stuff that I'm talking about. And once you kind of realize that, it's just I had a, like such a comfort in realizing that, A, talking like they talked, they did not sound like they weren't smart. They sounded like they were from the environments that they were from, wherever that happened to be. You had that thought as a 15-year-old or 16-year-old? Yeah. You were able to sort of say to your, you were you were already trying to, like, examine that stuff consciously well in part because i remember something my brother told me one time because my brother had a friend from birmingham and he used to always do this impression of him where he'd be like Mumba! like that's how you always talk and i remember once i may have been like 12 and i said something about how he might not have been that smart my brother's like nah he's just from birmingham and that was an important thing for me to realize and then across the board and like as i got older i think i kind of noticed like in that while in the space i kind of got it i think i really got it like looking back in retrospect i could understand it but there was a certain grasp and understanding that Hey man, A, I always wear this. They did not grow up in the same house that I did. Like I always knew that part. I knew that part because the kids that I was going to class with didn't grow up in the same houses that I, you know, in the same house that I did. And I would hear them and the way they would talk about that. And so the actual ability to be smart or whatever it was, okay, I got that. And I could tell how patronized, how their their teachers were patronizing them. I could tell that quickly. Well, sure. You were just aware of what the various uses of the knife are. Right. Well, also because they didn't talk to us like that in those other classes. Like, I would get in there and be like, yo, they talk to them in a completely different way. I remember I had a dude, he taught an anatomy class. And one day, for some reason, I couldn't go to the honors anatomy class that day or I had to take a test or something. I had to go to the regular anatomy class. And I heard him ask a student, are you illiterate? And I was like, whoa, they don't talk to us like this over here. Did you hear that? um, Do you listen to Revisionist History ever? I do not. Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell podcast? Yeah, I haven't heard it, but I know of there's one episode of it you got to hear where he talks about what happened in the shadow of Brown v. Board of Education and in uh, when black teachers weren't hired. Mm-hmm. And right, they only kept the white teachers. It's just an incredible thing about the way in which then the white teachers talked to the kids. Subliminal bias. Right. Nothing intent. No intentional bias. Subliminal bias uh, um, making them evaluate potential entirely differently. Yep. Nothing you don't know, but the way that I have a lot of problems with his, uh, a lot of problems with sort of like the various conclusions he makes nowadays, but in certain ways, but this episode is really yeah. worth well, it. Well, I'll tell you on that line, Barbara Jones was the yes. savior for me in that my mother is the yeah, one that shows mom. up and everything, but it would be funny because this is a small town. So since it's a small town, a lot of the teachers- I mean, your mother was 17 and she made a huge speech at the end yes. of ACP yes. and was a real leader in all yes. this stuff. Yes. So. And she was like the Dean of business at Prairie View when we were there. So- she was the one to come to school to make sure that everybody did the things that they were supposed to do and everything else. But I'll never forget one. This is an amazing story. Once we're sitting there, it was an open house. And this one teacher we had, one of the nicest women I've ever met in my life, right? Just as patronizing as she could be about these things. And she just had no idea. But I mean, her intentions were very, very good, like rooted in faith, you know, and all that stuff. And so it's open house. And my mom's sitting in class and they'll listen to the woman give her a whole spiel. And my mother raised her hand and said, um, so what can you do for students who learn at one end of the spectrum? 
And the woman looked at my mother and with the, all the enthusiasm she could muster, she said, teach, teach, and reteach. And my mom said, uh, other, other, in. Other and, then the lady, and then the lady looked over and said, he's yours. She oh, goes, that's great. She goes, yeah. Right, but that was the thing. But that was the important thing was that enough had been done over points where people people knew the deal with me. But if you could let them slip into that subtle place, the assumption was going to be teach. teach the subliminal re-teach. bias just comes out right. immediately, right. in spite of the fact that you're listening to someone who is referring to this as learning at one end of the spectrum. Right, <laughs> but immediately you go to the remedial. You just right. go right to oh well, let me explain how we deal with the remedial cases. Right, and it's like well, why? Right, and that was her immediate thing. So how is I. Uh, I wanted. I was going to ask you about how they stoked your curiosity about the world, your parents. But it's clear they were just not only. I mean, they were not only intellectuals, but they were committed, intentional parents. What do you think? A lot of the time, really smart kids, uh, um, in in high school, the ones who are smart and capable and not smart and goofy, empathy does not come easily to them. What happened to allow you? Do you think to stoke that part of yourself too? Because you're a good listener. You don't destroy your listen. You don't destroy your callers unless they're, you know, unless. <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, you will if you have to. Right. But your, look, your ability to sort of try to understand where someone's coming from and connect with them is really manifest. You hear it on the show. You saw, I really saw it in the way you looked at Poppy on, on the TV show. But even when you're telling the story about looking at the kids in the class, mm-hmm. how was that talked about at, at home, this idea of, being an empathetic, connected person. I think it's more just tacit than anything else, right? So, like, my father is one of ten, and oh, when you're, yeah, so when you're in a family of ten, you you basically wind up with a normal distribution of outcomes, you know, on how this goes with people. So, like, these, it's a whole different world when you go to each of these different houses within your family, you know, and even like with my mother's family, she's one of two, but the outcomes are a little different depending on who it is that you're talking about. And my dad, um. He always he he said this for a long time and it didn't really make sense to me until I was an adult. But his whole thing was, hey man, most people out here are doing the best that they can. And that is legitimately true. They don't know how to do it necessarily, but most people are truly and legitimately out here doing the best it is that they can. And so I have like to a degree an understanding of that. And also I don't really wanna My brother told me something when I went to college that was interesting that I hadn't really thought about. Where he was like, Look, man, um, if you, you know, your hook can be being the smart guy. That's cool. But it really helps if you're the cool guy, right? Like just that it's not even, and it's not like I'm Billy D Williams or anything like that, but you're better off being approachable and figuring out how to deal with people. And I did, I think I've had different points at this, but I've had moments that were really jarring and realizing when I was younger that I was really kind of putting people off because they thought that I was trying to lord my intelligence over them. And I really had, no consideration that that was what I was doing like I did not think of it in that way I was just like hey man you're good how you are like this is my thing of how I am right you know but people people are typically insecure about how intelligent they are relative to whoever the person is that is in the room like I'll be around really 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 smart people who are insecure about like what they feel their intelligence is stacking up to mine I remember talking to professors like you know that it's the same thing where I was just worried about, man, I hope this, you know, doesn't think that this is stupid or this doesn't make sense or whatever it is. And so once you understand that people kind of have that level of intimidation of it, you got to make people feel good about it. Like if you have a, Jay Adonde talks about this with Michael Jordan, where he says the greatest gift of Michael Jordan is he's really good at talking about how good he is. And he makes people feel good about being around his own greatness. Vision, yes. Right. He makes them feel good about that. 
being talented doesn't really matter if it puts people off. You know, like you kind of got to find a space where they feel good about being near it or that they have the opportunity to learn from whatever They're included it is. in the way. Right. In whatever you're... Because uh, intelligence for its own sake, I and mean, what you realize as you grow up or what I have, like in, in, intelligence for its own sake is um, can be wasted in the same way height can or speed can. Right. Right? It's what are you going to do? How are you going to serve? What are you going to serve? This gift that you have, what are you going to actually uh, apply that gift to to make a difference in some way for someone or for yourself? And recognizing intelligence, I think, is more important than your ability to display it, right? Because recognizing intelligence then allows you to figure out who the people are that you should truly listen to, right? Whose word you should take, who has insights, who can help you. And sometimes that's not going to be in the package that people assume it to be. Like, I remember one time I did a radio show and I did this long segment about how it was that the Heat were not going to win 70 games once LeBron first got there. And I say long. I mean, I talked about this for about 20 minutes. And this guy called in and they never won 70 games. So I think I was ultimately right. But I'll never forget this guy called in from Tulsa and he says, I mean, I heard what you said, but I mean, if they won 66 games last year with LeBron and those guys, I don't see why they can't win 70. And he hung up the phone, and I just remember telling to the audience, I just spent 18 minutes making this great point, and he just took me down <laughs> in two sentences, right? But you got to be able to recognize when you hear that dude. Wisdom. Like, you got right. actually, you have to be able to recognize <laughs> right. his wisdom, right? Like, like, hey, like, oh, there it is right there. Like, that's an argument that I don't have anything for, and there's no shame in the acknowledgement of that. Oh, keep it moving. <laughs> like, how, when do you think you realized that your ability to process or synthesize information was different than that of your peers? Uh, was it very early? Literally as long as I can remember. I think it's a bit of reinforcement from parents and stuff. Like I was actually, I was out on Saturday. My brother lives here. So I was out with him on Saturday night and we were at this thing and he was telling some story about me from because he's 13 years older than me. So he has like a totally, you know, this is a different, you yeah. know, sibling relationship there. And the story my parents talk about is we lived in Nigeria for a year when I was younger. And in Nigeria, at the time, there were three cars on the road. The Peugeot 404, the Peugeot 505, which was the sportier model, and the Volkswagen Bug. Those are the three cars that were there. And they were all basically the same color. Like, they were all basically tan or white. Those were only colors that it was that they offered. And they said that my, what I was able to do was we'd be riding around and we'd get to the parking lot and I could tell who was there. I could tell who was there, who was not, who just drove past, whatever it was. And my parents, like, they could not figure out how. They're like, how? I was like, oh. License plates. Right. So basically everybody we knew, I knew their license plate. Like I could pick up right quickly there that that was their license plate. And they said that was kind of the one where they were like, oh, okay, this may be a little bit different. Fascinating, man. That is. That's totally fascinating. Because mm-hmm. then what did they all do to figure out how to accommodate that? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. your parents are smart people mm-hmm. too and your brother's smart from the stories you tell about yeah, them. But the, well, I think the thing that helped them was well, having I mean, helps the right words. So we were in Nigeria. I remember we, you know, there was a school that was there for the children of American parents who were there for whatever reason. And so it's kind of a, um, I always call these things like homeschool in someone else's house. And so in those dynamics, you can kind of learn at the pace that you actually learn because you don't have to bring everybody um, along there. And so there's the Sunshine Nursery in Zaria, Nigeria. Then we came back to Atlanta where we were living at the time. And it was very much so a pan-African educational world there. I went from Freedom Institute to Atlanta Progress Academy, right? Like I have a picture of us at Freedom Institute with all the dashikis and a picture of the continent in the back and everything like that. 
And, and how old, sorry, how old are you? This is like four or five, like okay, four yeah. in there. And there, it was kind of the same sort of thing. Like they gotten access to books, and you could go with the pace that was necessary for you to go. And whereas where it becomes beneficial for black children to be around all black people is like the Brown versus Board thing that you talked about. We didn't have to shake off people's ability to figure out that maybe just maybe this kid is special. So once they realized that, you know, they teachers love nothing more than to be like, oh, OK, we will put more in front of you and just, you know, go with it from there. And so that's kind of the process. And what about grappling with the expectations of that? So like, you know, like a tennis player who at 13 is it the best guy at Boletari, you know, when that guy, does, if that guy doesn't become number one in the world by the time he's 18, he feels like a failure. So I, how did you start to manage your own expectations of what you wanted to be? Like the other day when you were talking about the guy who got fired from the Panthers, mm -hmm. David uh, Gettleman, yeah. you, you, were, you mentioned being fired a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. You talked about that, which was good humanizing sort of a thing. But someone like you is not supposed to fail. Yeah. And who's supposed to know what he wants and then go after it, right? Yeah. You go and you enter a master's program and you enter a PhD program. You decide it's not for you. Yeah. Well, that's where it gets interesting. You, you, yeah. hit, you hit on the important data point. So I was probably too self-assured for most of the period just because I was like, I know that I can do insert thing here. So I, I viewed school all the way up as I'm proving to you that I can do this, which I thought was unnecessary because I can do this and you know I well, can do Well, that's like grappling this. with the insecurity. Everyone says yeah. I'm smart. I know I'm smart. Well, am I really? Yeah. Who can I put yeah. myself up against? Right, but my problem was I didn't have, I, I would have been better off if I had the insecurity because I was just like, nah, we know what this is, right? Nobody questions this. I was like, nobody challenges this. And I got to college and I remember I was in this uh, fancy, this big scholarship program from the Navy because I was a science major when I first got there. And I was like, okay, well, let's see how I stack up here. And I got there and it seemed pretty clear from the jump what the stack up was and i was like oh, okay so i'm still like i don't have to dim i don't have to prove this to you i just have to get it done the phd program where um it was not for me a decision that was made both by me and the program that was the one because it was hard like that program was not what i expected it to be i didn't think it was going to be as straight mathematics as it was and i did not have the requisite study skills because i never had to work hard in my life right like i looked at all these people who would do all this study and i'm like up oh, good for you i'm gonna go over here and play video games right i didn't have any of those so i got to grad school and i mean it was kicking my ass up and down it was kicking everybody's ass to be clear because phd programs do that but i didn't have like the coping, me coping mechanisms for this kicking my ass i didn't have the techniques for getting around it, and that was the most jolting one. Because I remember me and a buddy of mine, we used to both talk about this. He was in uh, school in California when I was out there. And he was like, I've never really tried hard. And part of that is if I never really tried hard, I could never fail. Yeah, you know, that's the curse. It's a huge curse. Yeah, that's what he said. I, never, I could never fail. So he said, what would happen if I maxed this out and it wasn't good enough? And so I would argue that when I was in grad school at Carolina, I, I maxed it out as I could max it out with what I had on hand at the time. It was probably not the best I could quote unquote do. And I learned a lot of economics and it powers me from what I do, but I failed to micro qual and they told me to go home. And, but all the way there, it really was for me. It was just like, okay, if you've been told that you can do anything that you want to do, what happens the time that it is demonstrated that you cannot do this or it's, or it looks as though, cause it doesn't matter whether you can't. You didn't, and that decision was made. And I was talking to my dad about that. And, you know, and I just remember he told me, he said, hey, man, you're the smartest one out of all of us. We're not really worried about this. And it really got me. It was just like, so wait a minute. 
I could suffer what I consider to be this pretty significant Defeat. failure. And I think my parents really wanted to get a PhD out of the kid rank, right? I think they did. And I was the last hope in that sure. regard. And like this was the failure. Like there was no other way to look at it. I can give you every excuse of, well, if I'd worked hard, if I all that if doesn't matter. That was a failure. And the fact that they did not look at me any differently afterward was really, really, really important. What did it what did it feel like though to you? Like the failing part? Yeah, dude. <sighs> it's like when you realized you were in quicksand, yeah, what did it feel like? It felt like, well, I was at a certain level of optimism about it because it really was just a matter of can you pass like these tests? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, okay, I can gear up. So the way it goes in economics, you take a macro qualifying exam and a micro qualifying exam. Across the board, the micro qualifying exam is typically the one that takes people down. There's some schools where the macro is the hard one, but it's normally It's the like micro. organic chemistry for med students, yes. essentially. It's the thing that tells you if you're going to be an economist or not. That's the one. So macro, I came out okay. Some of the people who passed micro didn't pass macro. Found that to be shocking. Micro um, didn't come out, and it's a bit of a black box process, so who knows how close or how far, how far that I was on that. But I also remember when we took that, it was a list that we had circulating around of Nobel Prize winners who did not uh, pass the micro qual the first time they took it. So it was a lot of people who didn't pass it the first time they took it. And so I was like, okay, well, the second time will come around. But by the time the second time came around, I was done. Like I had just said within myself, I wasn't working hard at the classes I was taking. I was writing more than I had ever been writing before and making real money writing. So did you start to figure out then what you really wanted to do? Um, well, I wanted to do the PhD really to to write like i i saw the phd as a path into that public intellectual space yeah, well, was that was just really writing big. those words public intellectual yeah that was really now. big at that time and i looked around and realized there were no black economists that were really filling that space which i thought would make me like really so this attractive. is actually a calculated you weren't following an obsession or your no. curiosity no all the stuff that like later you no. figured out no this was a, a sort of a calculated mm. approach to platforming yourself yeah. to a place in the culture i did the first masters because i did not have a job and i learned the hard way that my naivete about um, how much money I could make as a freelance writer that wasn't going down. So somebody called me and said, hey, we got this fellowship. They called me in August. We got this fellowship to go to school if you want to do it. And I said, okay, so it's January. They're like, no, 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 no. In a couple of weeks. And so I told my, told my parents and they're all right, you know, put a credit card in my pocket, sent me on the plane to California and went out to do that because I didn't have anything else to do. And the one thing I said when I got out of college was if I'm going to do anything, it isn't going to be economics. And then there I was in effectively an economics program. But I told myself, I was like, well, okay, once I'm here, um, there's a lot that I can pick up that will make me better, you know, in this space. Then I got there and was actually very interested in the subject matter as it was presented at Claremont Graduate University. And I was like, okay, I think I like maybe I could do a PhD in this. Now, the other thing that happened was I didn't take the GRE before I got there because there wasn't time. So they said you had to take it before the start of your second year. And so I took the GRE that next summer and... I got a math score that pretty much meant if I wanted to go a PhD program, I could. And so I was like, okay, this will be the next step in the process. And I think, again, this will be very helpful toward the things that I ultimately want to do. But no, 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 this wasn't about passion. This wasn't, it, it wasn't there. Like I learned a lot there and I find it interesting and it molds my thought process. But one thing I can tell you about a PhD program for anybody who's thinking about doing it, if you don't love it, go do something else. Right. And did you then take time afterwards to sort of figure out did you have a, a, a dark night of the soul of trying to figure out, well, okay, so what am I? Like, what do I want to be? Yeah, I did. It was very much, I didn't know, like, well, the other thing that had happened was before the end of grad school, I started writing a music column for AOL that was paying 600 bucks a column, one column a week. 
And so I'm living in Durham, North Carolina. I got money. You know, for me, I got money. I just I bought a house because, you know, they were letting anybody buy a house um, back That's then. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so I bought a house. And then after I, the qualified exam didn't go well, AOL decided that that column was going to become a blog. And instead of $600 a week, it was going to be $20 a post, one post a day, five days a week. Yeah. Right. So Rude. now I'm like, whoa, 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 what am I going to do? And by the way, this also means that my check for being a graduate student is about to start going away also. So I'm like, I have no idea like how I'm going to pull this off because I know I can't make enough money to live just by writing. Like I know this. And then I got lucky that um, ESPN called and wanted me to do consistent freelance work that would allow me to come close to like living and did you know then that this world of sports and culture was the place you really wanted to live for a while? I think that, I think if you were to ask me, I probably always knew that that was where I wanted to live. I just had no idea how you got there. You know, like I didn't work at a newspaper. I had no training in doing those sorts of things. Like I came in through the back door in a lot of ways. So then once I got there, like this is what I would be doing anyway. Like these are the sure. things that I would be talking about at all. Now, I think one step I left out in that is that in 2004, I met Ralph Wiley. And Ralph Wiley was the guy that woke me up at ESPN in the first place. And if Ralph Wiley said I could write about sports, then, then you felt you could. Yeah, what was anybody else going to tell me that mattered at that point? And so then I was there. You know, it was pretty bumpy after that. But boom, then I was there. And you were in it. Yes. You know, there's one thing which uh, I just want to say in case people are listening and in case anyone's listening with the, uh, who happens to have like a young child. I don't know if you, if you know this, but I... I I have um, like kids who are pretty high, high achieving. And one thing, so I started reading about stuff when my son was young. I'm not really allowed to talk about them on the show. But, um, but it turns out that praising kids for an immutable characteristic past a certain point doesn't actually help them when the going gets tough. Yeah. It turns out that they did this test. Do you know about this thing? I this woman, not. Ashley Merriman, wrote a book. She studies. She's a, she's a sociologist and very smart. And she wrote a book with Poe Bronson. And you can find this book, but the essential thing is they took two sets of kids. They gave them the same test. They told group A that they did well. It was an easy test. They told group A, you did well because you're smart. They told group B, you did well because you worked hard. And then they made the tests progressively harder. Randomized groups. The ones who were told they did well because they worked harder did well far longer and far better than the ones who were told they did well because they were smart. Mm -hmm. Because... When the ones who were told they were smart got to the really hard thing, they were like, I must not be smart enough for this. It's an immutable characteristic, so they felt they couldn't change it. The ones who were told about working hard were like, I better grind harder. Right. And they grinded harder, and they did better longer. And as a parent, uh, that was like the one useful thing I picked up in the world was, yeah, make sure your kid knows they're smart enough to do anything, but actually focus the praise on a characteristic that they can continue yeah. to improve right well see the thing for me was i viewed it as the immutable, immutable characteristic you're absolutely right but the problem was i was still achieving right and so oh, it's course. right and so yeah. but the issue becomes then it's hard to sell the work harder because that kid is going to be smart enough to understand that the payoff of his hard work at least in the current time is like not that great because i mean look i skipped a grade um right. we moved when we moved to texas they wound up having to skip that. me a grade and you wind up getting to a point though that because of social reasons 
there's but so much like challenge that you can put into the academic structure. There's yes. but so much that you can do because otherwise your kids are going to, I mean, if we're going to be frank, your kids are trying to be weirdos. Like that Doogie Howser thing on television, Doogie Howser would have been such a weirdo. Vinny ain't coming through the window in real life. He ain't got no chance to meet Vinny. What is he and Vinny talking about? You're a doctor. No, right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I like you look at someone like Ronan Farrow who, you know, graduated college was at Yale Law School when he was like 14 or yeah, 15. It's not good. <laughs> it's, it doesn't say it, it. I mean, he's fine. He's like the one in a zillion, but right. yes. But, but but then the battle becomes, I think, in many ways over the course of life to just find a way to be comfortable in your own skin, right? Because there's all this other stuff you're trying to achieve or prove something, as you said. How do you have, like for me, it's been a conscious exploration as I've gotten older, really conscious like set of things to do to try to just live in this thing that i'm in are do you is it conscious for you to get to that place where the the striving for its own sake isn't isn't there where it's like here's who i am yeah i've been i've kind of been there for a while um i was tell people too like my parents when i was like 12, 13, somewhere around there. Somebody got the bright idea. Hey, we should take the kid to a therapist, which was actually fantastic. I could probably stand to go for one now at this point, right? But a lot of it was, I think, just like generally developing. I'm a New York Jew on the Upper West Side. I can recommend. <laughs> I got a list of them for you. Tell me what ails you. I'll solve the problem for you. But it's like, it's just generally like comfort with self stuff. And then I remember at one point, my brother who's older came back to live in the house for a while at a point where he was too old to live in the house. And there was a lot of the things that he kind of imported in me because he's the most comfortable person with himself that I've ever met um, in my life, right? And so I don't know, like, through that, you know, let's say teenage years, everybody's dealing, like, just how conscious it winds up being at that point. But I do remember I had a point in my freshman year of college where I had been told um, that basically I had all these people around me who really, really wanted to like me, but they were kind of hating my guts, right? They just, they just really didn't like the way I kicked it. They found me to be abrasive and annoying and all these things. And it really, like, it was really hurtful. Like, I remember I went, and they didn't do anything wrong. They were just, you know, having their natural reaction. The guy who told me, he was being a jerk about it. But I remember I went to my parents' house that weekend because I was broken down. Like, I thought, I'd, I thought I'd come to college, and I thought I'd made all these new friends. You know, I'm 16 years old. Like, I mean, I'm thinking all these things, and then I find out, nah, actually— they don't rock with you at all. And I was like, oh man, that's like, that really broke me down. And then I remember I came home and I thought to myself, and this is, I did have this conscious realization at 16, 17, whenever it was, it was, I, I'm not going to change who I am for people, but I can change what I do. And you have to have a conscious understanding that what you do and who you are are not necessarily the same thing. And so I really worked on like, you know, the way I talk to people and the way that I presented things, because I didn't really spend that much time growing up around kids my age. I didn't really know how to relate to people my age. And I remember I did that. And the one guy who was the ringleader of Everybody Hates You, and I really knew that I was making these efforts to change this. And he got mad at me about something. And I realized, oh, wait a minute. This isn't about me. This is about you. Right. Like I realized that. And it just part of that came then to the understanding of all you can be is you. You know, like that's that's all I can do. I can't do this any other way. And some people are going to like it and some people are not. But all I can do really is be me. And if people don't like you, they have the right to not like you because you don't like some people, too. It's kind of a random piece of happenstance. And so I did get that part fairly early that, OK, this is who I am. I'm not ever going to be like I've never been in a group of people where I felt like I was like them. 
I'm never going to be like them. So I got to be good with being me because I'm never going to be able to be good with being like them. Yeah, what you can do is try to keep improving the thing that you are, right? Right. You can keep trying to grow it. Right. Keep trying to figure out what you're curious about and chase it down. Right. But but think about it like this, right? So I start, as you know, talked about all this bio stuff, but like we put it in sequential order, right? So I grow up in the house with these two professors as parents. Like we moved to Nigeria. So there, you know, there's, there's other American kids there, but still we're in a world that I don't really know. We come back, we're in Atlanta for a little while, then we move to Houston, where I am the the one black kid in this white suburban neighborhood, and then I'm going to school out here. I don't live in the world that they live in. I'm not of that, you know, really in, in those ways. Uh, when I get to these smart people classes, I'm the one black person that's there. I'm not like the people who are around me. When I'm around the black kids that I'm around there, I'm not really like them. Like, we're, I mean, we're all black, but I'm not like them, and I'm aware of this fact basically all the time that I'm not like them. Um, from there, like I go to black college and that was different because that was, it, that's where you realize you don't have to be like anybody because once, once you remove race as the variable there, everybody kind of gets to be who they are. So like I get there, I realize that I get to California to go do that program there. There are no black people there over there. Like I'm not like them. I get to Carolina, you know, kind of different, but not really. Well, those people are good at math. Yeah. Well, they, so that's they why you weren't very, like they, them. they were very good. They were good well, at math. Well, I was good at math, just not that kind of good, Dude, right? Don't take debate. Yeah, don't can't take help debate. It. Can't help it. Can't Come help on. It. Can't help it. Can't help it. Can't help it. I had to be like, just to be clear, I am pretty I good. I am good at, listen, yeah. I got an 800. Yeah, so I told, understand, you told you about that GRE. I didn't get an 800. You know, but yeah, but you know, so at every turn, once you realize you're not like them, all you can do is be you. That's it. Like, so I can find the places where I relate, you know, to those folks. But if you never, like, once you realize you're not going to be that, then all you can do is ride out this thing that you got going. And the thing I think that for a lot of people, not everybody, because this turns some people off, the reason I feel like I can navigate through all those spaces is because I'm good with me. Yeah, for sure. Because you've you've lived this whole thing and mm. figured it out. So when you're this sort of like um, rhetorically gifted, uh, it becomes easy to think that you're always right. Because you're very good at convincing everybody else mm. that you're right. It's your job. Right. Who keeps you honest? How do you keep yourself honest? Oh, man, it could be anybody, man. Like, that's the thing. Like, this is one thing from all those experiences and being around. Like, that dude who called up and hit me with the 70 game argument. Yes. If I am, I am largely a slave to logic, right? Like, the, the thing I try to do for my audience is I will not give you an argument that I myself would not listen to, right? Like, I will not pass anything off on you that does not fit the level of scrutiny that I would give to what it is that you say to me. And so I feel like once you give people that respect, like from the beginning, the next level of that respect is listening with that same ear. So they're like people I don't like. There's some people I just won't listen to because I just don't think that they are, you know, deemed worthy. But by and large, until you prove otherwise, I'm pretty much down to hear, you know, whoever it is. Like my my brother is probably the best one at doing this. Um, My parents to a lesser degree, but my brother, absolutely. I got all kinds of people like when I'm doing like, football stuff uh, my buddy steve white works at sb nation steve says i'm wrong about something i know instantly okay let me go rethink let this me go re- yeah and, go, and go look back on it like with that that's just on the strength of him and me knowing that he knows more than me on these things because what i do know is all kinds of people know more stuff than i do like i on these like in this i would view myself more as like a decathlete in the sense that the decathlete is good at a whole lot of stuff but the decathlete is rarely better than anybody yet anything right so yeah you could be the gold medalist in the decathlon you're not beating usain bolt so you need to acknowledge that usain bolt runs faster than you and there's no shame in that because usain bolt can't throw the shot put okay cool there you go right and especially because you have the resource to then call whoever you think is an expert in yes hoop or an expert right in football or baseball or whichever part of right it. 
and also doing like national sports coverage you realize like the thing you point out there like i'm helicoptering in on all these different topics like you realize the local guys know more than you on every and so you topic. reach out to them right individually on every topic they know more than you so basically whenever you get up to talk there is somebody out there who knows more than you Right, and so what your job becomes is to put a narrative on the whole Correct. thing it's a and craft, uh, synthesize it, and then craft what the story is. Right. I mean, I, I want to talk about how you see the world of sports, mm-hmm. but it's a conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, I do think when I when I listen to you and you're so interested in almost what I like the professional wrestlingification of sports, <laughs> yes. which is, which is we're all more interested in what McMahon and them do privately right. now the back you know who gets to be the picked as the winner right and i think that, that that and fantasy has changed the way we watch all these sports when we were kids even nobody was really talking about the presidents and gms of the clubs in the same exact way that they talk about players right but you're very interested in that stuff. i am well one thing i think we have to remember is that sports is primarily consumed in this country as television shows and television shows are built along a certain construct. And that construct is apparent at the beginning of every game broadcast. You just don't realize that's what's happening. We are giving you the main characters. We are giving you a plot. And then we are going to see how this thing carries out. And I realized it one year in the women's Final Four. I think uh, Brittany Griner was at Baylor. And everybody thought that uh, Baylor was going to walk through it. And they lost in the Final Four round. I think it was to Notre Dame. I can't remember who they lost to. All we'd heard the whole way up was Brittany Griner, Brittany Griner, Brittany Griner. Now Brittany Griner was gone. Man, they were ready for that championship game, and all they did was say, um, playing the role of Brittany Griner in this production is Skylar Diggins. Right. And we dropped Skylar Diggins in, and all of a sudden, we had a whole new story and narrative that we had constructed and built. And so you're interested in the narrative, but you take yeah. it back. You're, it seems, as interested in the back office. Yes, stuff. because that's the thing people can relate to. We, those, the office politics and all those things and everything else, we all know those things, right? Like we all know, um, so like with Gettleman, for example, I kind of almost wondered in my head if they told Gettleman like the, on Friday, uh, well, why don't you just go home and we're going to decide what we're going to do. And then they, hey, Dave, you think you can come in on Monday morning at like eight o'clock? Right, just like an office. Just, just like everybody else. Like all these things happen just like everybody else. Like I work at ESPN, right? You get there and you realize, wait a minute. This is an office just like everywhere else. This place has the same sort of office politics and all of these things. And so you realize kind of the commonality of it. So like with general managers and stuff, I kind of like to like get some of the mythology out of this. That these are like all-knowing oracles. But no, these are dudes that hustle their ways into jobs just like everybody else has hustled their ways into jobs. And so I find it funny. This is something I actually got from Chappelle because the brilliance of Dave Chappelle is it's coding, right? Like the Chappelle game is all about, I'm taking these situations and I'm coding them in different ways to then help you understand what the essence of this situation is. So like with those GMs and stuff, I feel like if you take the coding and eliminate all the PR spin and everything else and code this like everybody else's job is, it becomes so totally fascinating. Two more things and we'll be done. One is like, uh, do you have some kind of daily practice? Like, you know, I know you're like, like you, I'm not religious. I mean, I'm an atheist. I mean, you just say, you know, through church. Yeah. I haven't heard you say whether you're an atheist or not. Yeah, I don't like having that argument with people. Right. But you are clearly and, uh, <laughs> an atheist. We don't have to argue about it, but you say enough stuff, talk about encoded, <laughs> that it's clear what your belief is about that or lack of belief. But like, so I put a whole, like I meditate and I do morning pages. I do a bunch of stuff because I don't have what other people have, which right. is church to go to or temple to go to. What do you have any sort of daily practice where you're uh, a routine of checking in with where you are in any way? I don't, and I kind of need to. 
like I, I have a recognition of like I don't write enough about um you know the things that I do um a very uh, good friend of mine recommended to me that I should probably do more to you write journal. to recap. Well, this like I think about like the last four years and what it was. You guys, I moved to Miami on like two and a half weeks' notice. You mm-hmm. know, like like that was a shock on a number of levels, and in the last really four or five years, my life has kind of it. It is flipped up in a lot of ways where I feel like I personally have effectively stayed the same, but I've got all these things around me that have changed that then quietly affect the relationships with the people that are around you. And so at once you try to cling to what was while also enjoy what's new and all these different things. And I admit that in making sense of those topics, I am probably an absolute mess, right? Well, I I saw last night you were talking about not flying coach anymore. Mm -hmm. And there was just a half second pause where you were about to say that. Or not say it. Yeah. And then you said it, and it's like a dawning thing of like, well, that's in the past for me. <laughs> well, I said it last week. Like, last week, I was very honest about the fact. Because the one thing I do on that podcast, I try to be honest with people, is it's a lot of people that have been listening to me for like, I've been doing that podcast now for six or seven years. You mean the thing um, at home? Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing that for the like weekly six, thing. Yeah, I've been yeah. doing that about six or seven years. So there's a lot of people that have been back from when things were different. And what I try to do and explain is I try to give them into how these things change, right? So, and the way I explained it is with coach, you're good with coach until you take like two or three straight first class flights right like if you take a first class flight and then you come back and you take you go right back to coach it's not a big deal but if you take two or three of those first class flights in a row that one time that you're back in 33a is not cutting it ever again you're not doing it you cannot right and so i do i do worry about those things and like putting people off who are close to me and having them you know those things worry me because I don't, those are the people, like I was 30 something years old when all this happened. These are my people, these people that got me here and these are the people that I care about. I'm not looking, it's not a no new friends like Drake bullshit. It's like, I'm not looking for new friends. I got the people in my life who matter to me and it's important to me to like want them to be close and it winds up being a dilemma where the people who are around you think you're too busy and then you don't hear from them anymore and then you call them and they got you know you know they got kids and they got all these different things and they do and then now you're in this new place right you're in this new life and then you're on the podcast saying you know i don't really fly coach anymore and then you worry because then your friend that might want to fly somewhere with you is afraid that now you know they can't go because they can't just afford buy his size. upgrade man. right and see, buy your friend's and upgrade and you see, and that's the thing you think like me but then if your friends have a certain measure of pride and don't want to feel like somebody well, you just can't take, make them feel like it, that's a yeah, right. You know, we can but, talk about this off yeah, the mic. Yeah, There's see, a way to do that. But see, but that's the thing. And that's where all these things like kind of come together and where I say, yes, I should probably find somebody to talk to about these things that I may get a recommendation from. Yo, what are these therapists? Because it all it's it all comes together like in those ways. And I do often um, wish that I was a bit more like my more religious friends because they do have a place where they turn and they can unload those burdens and at the very least be like, hey, you know what? God's going to make everything work. And I am, uh, I guess, in this production playing the role of God because I'm like, how am I going to make this work? It's very challenging. You know, this stuff of growing and becoming successful and then figuring out what to do with that because actually intellect doesn't solve it. The problem for someone like us, for you, I don't want to, like, I don't want to just, it's not like I'm diagnosing you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I'm as smart as you Mm -hmm. are. But I'm saying that the, certainly not at math, even though you (laughs) suck at it, I'm even worse, (laughs) is that um, intellect doesn't solve these things. Heart solves these things and actually figuring out grace is what solves these things. Not grace the way that religious people talk about it. Right. But a measure 
of grace, which takes a beat, which people who think very quickly and have been able to get into and out of any situation they want, yeah. because there's because they're able to uh, give voice very immediately and quickly mm. to whatever the thoughts are. Right. Grace happens in the silent little moments in between that guys like us don't have very often. Yeah, and you know, and silent and success rather can be isolating. You know, like, and that's that's kind of so. What happens is you get to a certain point of success, and the only people typically who can really relate to it, unless you just had like the wonderful luck on your friend base early, the only people typically who can relate to it are like all these new people that you're meeting, and it's also weird. And I don't know how this went for you, but like getting to this point, I always thought it was something I could do, but I didn't try to. So I kind of like got here accidentally. Once you get here, you realize like on television, there's a whole lot of people who got on TV because the reason they wanted to be on TV is because they wanted to be on TV. And I'm not one of those people. No, so I wasn't either. Relate. Like the thing that happened to me was because I really followed this obsession and fascination and curiosity. I was miserable at 30 years old because I wasn't, I was successful, but not at what I wanted. Right. And I had to change it because I knew I had to be part of telling these stories. But you know, in my business, you have enough failure that right. all along the way that you're humbled over and over. Not oh, yeah. in the bullshit way people are like when they win an award, say humbled. Mm. That's my least favorite use of the word humble. Right. They're not humbled in that moment. They're accepting right. the award. They're, they're pro- but, but I mean, you get humbled when your movie bombs and people to say you suck. Mm. You're humbled. So like, I got to li- live a lot of that. Yeah. I've been up and down. Oh yeah. And I've been fired in some of the most humiliating ways possible. Right. Give me Where the best just... one as we end. And oh, then I have like one more question. Oh yeah. The best one. Never forget this. Uh, I worked at a place and uh, the place got sold. And they were telling us that, you know, well, look, man, if you hear any rumors about what's going to happen, don't believe them. You call us. You let us, you talk to us, and we'll tell you what the truth is. A friend of mine sends me a text that says, hey, I'm sorry to hear that uh, insert name here has got your show. And I call him and I say, what? And he says, yeah, um, they just put out a press release to say that in this time slot, that insert person here is going to be there. And so I called the man who told me not to assume. And I asked him if this was true, like explicitly straight, like, is this thing here true? And the response I got was, ah, I can neither confirm nor deny. No, I can neither confirm nor deny. I was supposed to be and you were already fired. You were yeah. already replaced. I was going, no, I wasn't replaced. Even worse. I wasn't replaced yet. I was going they'd to hire the guy that, to they basically they'd made, hired the guy they to replace basically you. made the decision. And I'll never forget. I called a friend of mine after that. And I just started sobbing. I just couldn't believe. It. I didn't know I was capable of feeling that way over something like that. I was. Just, it was so humiliating. I just couldn't figure this out because then I had to go to work the next day. Like, like that was you had to keep doing the show for another two months, for two more months. Like I kept having to walk in and go to work. It was helpful though because I learned at that moment that I work for me and not for the people that I work for. But that was like that was the one where it was just like, hey man. At any moment, you can be disposed of. I work for ESPN now. I've been fired by ESPN before, man. Anybody can get clapped. At some point, somebody might wake up and clap me off of this. And when that happens, I'm going to get right back up like I did before, and I'm going to find something else because your brilliance will not save you. It doesn't matter. These things just happen. Lastly, do you think, and we didn't even talk about Highly Questionable, which I just want to say, that chemistry of the three of you is, I don't think people understand how special that show was and the absurdest Dada nature of that show. <laughs> yeah, it's the Dale Levitar classic. Like, it is the it combination. Is the three of you together, it was something that will never be repeated. It's the funniest show. Uh, for me, that was the funniest show on television every day. It was well, it's funny you mentioned it being subversive. The brilliance of that was Dan 
and and they kind of wound up in a circuitous place in getting there. I wasn't there when this happened, so I feel I can't say exactly how. But the idea that Gonzalo Lebertard has a Heisman vote—that's just the most amazing. Right, thing right. In the world. That which which tells you everything you need to know about well, awards and sports and everything else. And he sits there on ESPN in the middle in those shirts and does those things and. We don't lose anything in terms of our ability to substantively handle sports by having someone's seventy-year-old father right there, which is Who the moment where does we, not know anything about not, sports. I really not. Not, not. I not. mean, I, I, you know, some most sometimes I guess comes up with his own yep. things to say. Sometimes, yep. yep. Doesn't necessarily. Yep. But that means we should all look at ourselves in sports and be like, why are you taking this? Because you're seriously? taking the Heisman seriously and he, <laughs> Poppy, he has a vote. Poppy has a vote. He has a vote. I have to say that ruined the Heisman for me forever. By the way. Right, but how can you take the height? And the the way that you were gentle with, with him. First of all, the big disappointment was when your dad was there that you didn't let him talk. I don't. You should have let your no, dad. No, we tried. Do the show. We tried. Not everybody's dad's a performer. <laughs> your dad's a professor. He is, but you know, hey, man, you know, I put my eighty year old dad up there, and he's not like he's not he's not that guy. What um, people should just go get old tapes of that show and watch the farewell to you. I really do miss the show. I haven't been able to bring myself to watch the show anymore. Because the three of you was something different. Yeah, actually, I haven't watched it yet either because I don't think I'll be fair. Right. You know, like I think I'll watch it. And I, like it's hard for me. You not know, to... you weren't asked to leave it. You were given yeah. another show. Right, right, right. It wasn't fighting, but it's still. I mean, I started that show knowing it wasn't going to be like a permanent condition. Like I, I like it was my goal was not to do that show for twenty years. My goal was really to do that show for four. And it kind of went, you know, that's that's the way that it wound up going. But man, that was fun to do, right? Like even me and Dan weren't necessarily getting along at a point in time or anything else. It was fun to do. And it was also interesting to talk about like being gentle with uh, Gonzo is also interesting because when you do a show with a father and son, you're there with someone's father-son dynamic relationship. Right, 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 right. And, you know, and, and what their dynamic is, it is more helpful to be the other person over there that is gentle with the old man. But to be fair... As is the case with most people's parents, the old man is more likely to listen to me than he is to listen to Dan, which of course infuriates Dan, right? Yes. You yeah, know? of course. And so you maintain the equilibrium in that sort of way. Well, it's really a special thing to watch. What do you, uh, what do you read every day? Like, what is it that? So I'm interested. In, do you read fiction ever? I do not do fiction. So what? You, that's another thing. But uh, which you, you, I wonder. You might maybe when you're 40. But mm -hmm. what? Um, what do you read on a daily basis? Like who do you? Who are the? You don't. You know. One. What do you read in the world of sports? What do you read in the world of culture? And and then to tie it all all up. What do you see in 10 years? Like, do you see sports? Because I can't see how sports hold you. Really. Well, I have been. I think you're John Stewart. Like, I think for you, the answer is the way that he used comedy to become what he became. Like, I really believe that for you, the end of this has to be some sort of a, a show about the world. Well, I'll be honest. When the Daily Show job came open, I called my agent and I was like, I'm never going to get this job, but I want you to call them and tell them that I want this job, right? If for no other reason than if they were aware of my existence or whatever it was, right? But I was like, I'll just, just tell them that I'd be interested, you know, in this job. And of course, you know, they made it much better actually they, they had already made the decision before i had a chance to tell Perfect. anybody this right and he's very good at it so it worked out um oh you know worked out okay there um 
I read, I have become largely platform agnostic, and I think I have become a citizen of the 21st century internet where we depend on the recommendations of our friends largely to kind of guide us. So you just read Twitter and follow where it takes you? Yeah, I do that. I I read a lot, but I follow like 4,000 people, which is, and it's intended to be a broad range. So I wind up catching a lot. Like I got my Apple News thing set up to um, get me where I go. I read. I read a lot of bios and stuff on planes. It's like I read like book stuff. I primarily read on planes because I need to be sitting somewhere for three hours where I can't do anything else. Like those are those are kind of the, the where I am now. Um, when my man Coates was writing a little bit more regularly, that was my one go to. I absolutely have to because I read that and I'm just like it's funny. Dan, I tell Dan about reading Coates. And he's like, I feel like you can do that. And I look at Dan and I say, No, I can't. Yeah, it will take me twenty years of intense study in a whole range of topics. To- well, he's just an incredible crush. My yeah. Sam, my son Sam, it really loves him and feels mm-hmm. like he's the you know just the smartest, yeah. best writer. He's the cleanest writer too. But he, but he knows so much and he can bring so much into these things. And it's so like the clean is the part that gets me. Like there's like a, there's a so density clean. of the like economy of words and the density of it right. and all those things. Where like so like that was my one. Now where am I in ten years? sports is still interesting to me. Like if sports were to stop being interesting, then maybe there would be like some level of change, but it's still interesting to me. And I still think in a lot of ways it's the most effective way for me to reach a bunch of people who would love nothing more than to act like I didn't exist. And I get emails like probably, you know, every week from somebody who is not the person that you would expect to be like, you know what? I really appreciate what it is that you're doing or what it is that you've done and I don't know how easily I can really get that in these other places because everything else is so polarized. Like sports, regardless of what people say about the supposed liberal bias of ESPN these days, sports is kind of the only place now that isn't going on a conservative or liberal bent. Everywhere else, people are just listening to their own. And so this is a place, I think, to get more people who well, might otherwise You can't ignore. quite say it's a meritocracy because of the like situations like Kaepernick, but it's the yes. closest to a meritocracy. Yeah, there's it's it's, it's the a, closest. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting bottom line sort of thing yes, that you wind. That's up right. With. It's a bottom line sort of thing. And I, the point you made, and people should go listen to this, and we're going to end. But um, the point you made that nobody else made about Vic and Kaepernick is that um, is that Vic is coming from a place of somebody who needed to be redeemed. Kaepernick has nothing. Right. To ask for forgiveness for. Right. He's not bowing down. And so he doesn't need his whole point is I'm right. Vic couldn't stand on that. And that and I guess diving into that kind of thing allows you to use sports as a way to examine the themes right. and the issues in life. And it's the themes, right? Like I think um Ben Hogan, a golf swing, a good golf swing is a golf swing that can withstand pressure, right? And so for me, what I really am trying to do is just come up with a common approach that I can take and I can drive. That's why economics is so helpful, that you can come in and drop into all these places. So it doesn't matter really if I'm trying to hit it 150 yards or I'm trying to hit it 250 yards. You can take the same swing, just change the club. And, then, you know, you can go in and you can still do like all of these sorts of things. So, like, I just feel like it's all this stuff is general, man. Like, all this stuff is life. I cover the music industry. The stuff that goes on over there is effectively the same is the things that's going on in sports which ain't terribly different than what's going on in the madness on the front page you know so for me i really feel like it's just if you can figure this out if you can just find where the beat is dude named jimmy israel told me that about 15 years ago he's like you got to find the beat once you find the beat you could always stay on rhythm and so i feel like i'm finding the beat of how all these things work well, uh, and if you're trying to find the beat, remember it's the two and the four. Ignore the it one is the and, the two and the three. It is the Do two and the four. Do not 
Fuck around with the one yeah. and the three because then uh, nobody will want to. And, hang and with if you're you. on the one and the three, you need somebody like Harry Connick Jr. Have you seen this YouTube video? It is brilliant where he's no. play, he's playing piano for a crowd of white people. Oh, and they're clapping, and they're on, clapping the one on the one and the three. And so what he does is he adds a fifth bar to the meter to trick them, and then brings it back to a four. four. And then they're on the so two. Now they're, they're on, on the two, two and the four. four. Well, and, I, I could tell you a bunch of Harry Connick <laughs> stories, but I won't now. Hey, Bomani Jones, thank you so much for being here. Hey, man, thank this you. This was I really great. It. You can find Bomani um, on Twitter at... Bomani underscore Jones, B-O-M-A-N-I underscore Jones. And listen to The Right Time on the ESPN app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Like I said at the beginning of this, this is the last podcast I'm doing under the Slate banner, but at iTunes.com slash The Moment, you will still find the podcast thanks for listening and uh bomani jones thanks for being here hey man thank you